Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. If you follow my writing and my podcasting, and if you do, I'm very grateful and honored then you know that I write and talk from a Christian conservative worldview and that I frequently write about and ask my guests about the spiritual warfare in which I believe America and the Western world are engaged. I write and talk frequently about the persecution that believers face worldwide and even in the Western world, where that persecution may not be as deadly or physically dangerous, but may come more in the form of a soft totalitarianism. And I write and I speak about those things because I'm a firm believer that as Christianity goes, so goes our civilization. I believe our civilization is the greatest, the freest, and the most prosperous in human history. And I believe the primary reason for that is Christianity. This isn't really the space to do a deep dive into that, but I don't think it's coincidence that as Western civilization slips farther and farther away from what used to be called Christendom and slips into not just a deeper secularism, but a new paganism, It also slides deeper and more rapidly into chaos, degeneracy, and spiritual emptiness. And the more evidence we see that savagery and evil are running rampant right now in the very heart of Western cities. As I've written and said elsewhere, over 350 million Christians worldwide today face high levels of persecution, including death. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. There's precious little media coverage, for example, of the recent massacres of Christian communities at the hands of genocidal jihadists in Nigeria. There's precious little media coverage of the regime's ruthless persecution of Christians in communist China, and so on. This is not in any way to diminish the persecution currently being waged upon Jews worldwide. It's been only three months since the barbaric October 7th attacks in Israel, and the subsequent shocking displays of support for those attacks being openly displayed and celebrated, not only on university campuses and among our other cultural elites in the West, but even in the streets by hundreds of thousands of anti-Semitic protesters whose open bloodlust for the genocide of Jews has been pretty eye-opening, even for those of us who keep up with these kinds of cultural and ideological trends as part of our job. Jews are facing a terrifying tsunami of Jew hatred, and I in no way mean to dismiss or diminish that. Nevertheless, the fact remains that in a less overtly bloodthirsty way, Christians are not only being culturally and politically marginalized in a stage of Christian history that evangelical observer Aaron Wren calls negative world, but they are also headed toward, some believe, including myself, a totalitarianism that is moving from the soft kind to a harder, more brutal kind. I've mentioned probably a few times in episodes of The Right Take that the writer Rod Dreher, the author of books uh, that I highly recommend, like Live Not By Lies and The Benedict Option, he believes that in the West, this soft totalitarianism is going to intensify into seriously difficult times for Christians, including outright persecution. So he urges believers to prepare themselves both practically and spiritually for more severe levels of oppression. And along those lines, I've just finished reading a short but powerful book, a sort of oral history of the persecution of Catholics under communist oppression in the 20th century, 
an oppression that is still ongoing in some places around the world, such as Cuba and China, as I already mentioned. It's a really gripping, informative read, and not only do I recommend it highly, but I'm happy to say that the author is here with me today at The Right Take, and we're going to talk about it and about this serious issue. But I don't want you to think that this is a topic of concern only for Catholics, or even Christians in the larger sense. As I said earlier, as Christianity goes in our culture, so goes our whole civilization. It's of vital interest to everybody. So please stay tuned as we enter this rocking musical interlude. And when I come back, I'll be joined by author Kristen Van Uden for a great conversation about her book. Meanwhile, please take a moment to subscribe to The Right Take if you haven't already, so you can keep up with the conversations we're having here with important thinkers, writers, pundits, and storytellers. And if you like what you hear, a positive review would be greatly appreciated. It helps a great deal. Thank you. And don't touch that dial. My guest today at The Right Take is Kristen Van Uden, author of the brand new book from the good people at Sophia Institute Press called When the Sickle Swings, Stories of Catholics Who Survived Communist Oppression, which we're going to talk about today. She earned a BA in History and Russian Studies at St. Anselm College and a Master's in History at William & Mary. I've read the book and her depth of knowledge and research skills that she brings to bear in this book make it so much more informative and weighty than you would expect from what I'll call a slim volume. It's under 200 pages, but it's just a really compelling read that is dense with all kinds of uh, fascinating information. Kristen, welcome to the Right Take podcast. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for the great intro. It's great to be here. Kristen, a couple of months ago, I interviewed a fellow author of yours from Sophia Press, Alec Torres, uh, about his book, Persecuted from Within, How the Saints Endured Crises in the Church which has a slightly similar theme to your book, but his book focused on Catholic martyrs throughout history who suffered persecution within the church itself. Your book, on the other hand, focuses on Catholic survivors of communist oppression um, in what we call the the modern world, um, specifically in four countries, Cuba, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Romania. So the books are quite different reads, except maybe in the overarching theme of persecution against Christians, which I think is an important issue today uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that over 350 million Christians worldwide today face high levels of persecution, including death. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, You mentioned a couple of of good examples, China and Nicaragua uh, in the book. Um, So I think it's important and urgent even to raise awareness about that. And the other reason is that In the Western world today, we are witnessing cultural and legal threats to our religious freedoms, and Christians and their values are increasingly being targeted by authoritarian governments. And so I think a book like yours helps open people's eyes to what believers are facing, even in non-communist environments. So let me start by asking you about the origins of this book. What compelled you to take on this topic So I've always been compelled, as you mentioned before, by martyrdom. And when you look at the modern world and who the martyrs are today and over the past century, as I say on the back cover, and it seems hyperbolic, but for over half the 20th century across nearly half the globe, the Catholic Church was either outlawed, outright restricted, or persecuted in some way. And so I was compelled by the sense of a historian to take down this information before it's too late, because, of course much of the 20th century's history does not 
reside within the traditional documents and documentary evidence that we can expect to study in other centuries. And so this tool of oral history is somewhat new in the study. Of course, it's not available unless these oral histories were taken down when the people were still alive for other eras. But for the 20th century, that's been always one of the most intriguing forms of evidence to me. And I've always been interested in Holocaust studies, for example, and hearing the eyewitness firsthand testimonies of people who went through these events. And so I have the sense of urgency to take down stories of people who may not be here within the next couple of decades before it's too late. And I'm also very inspired by individual stories in a spiritual sense. I have always... um, had saints as favorites who either were martyrs or who suffered some sort of a white martyrdom. And reading their individual biographies has spoken to me in a way that reading about statistics or generalized teachings of the church doesn't. And it's really this intimate knowing of someone's experience that can help us to see the world around us, because of course, we only can experience the world as individual people. And so these stories were icons of grace that I felt made the gigantic behemoth of communism a bit more understandable. And as one of the stories of a lady named Olga in Czechoslovakia illustrates, at one point she finds herself face to face with a Soviet tank on the streets and just this juxtaposition of the individual and the individual soul versus this entire ideology of atheism and totalitarianism is so striking. And so I thought these individual voices were important to highlight. Uh, the book is con- is really organized around these interviews. So the four countries that I focus on come from basically the availability of interviews. So it's not comprehensive, as I say in the introduction, but I do believe it is representative of the Catholic experience under communism, because I do find very striking similarities among the experiences, regardless of geographic and temporal disparity, because it's the same set of principles standing against the same set of anti-principles, if you will, coming from the communists. So it is something that I think is universally applicable, as you mentioned, to Catholics who are seeking to survive in any degree of hostility, whether that's what we face in the West or whether that's actually strict communism, as we have currently in China. And so I hope there's something for everyone to take away from this. Uh, As kind of a quick aside, you mentioned a moment ago uh, white martyrdom. Could you explain to the audience what the difference is between red and white martyrdom? Yes. So red martyrdom is the classic, what we think of making the ultimate sacrifice, so losing your life for the church. And white martyrdom is basically any other suffering that happens to you because of your faith. So We are taught as Catholics that basically you can't get out of this life without suffering, that because Jesus himself was persecuted, of course, his followers can't expect not to be persecuted. So this is something that kind of comes with the territory. And white martyrdom can consist of anything from in the experiences of the subjects of my book, losing a job, being ostracized from society, even something as seemingly insignificant as being unable to acquire supplies. So not being able to buy a new coat or a loaf of bread because you're not part of the communist party. And so you're, you're taken out even of, of that small action in society. And so as someone I interviewed put it, this amounts to death by a thousand cuts. And this is actually something that <clears throat> if we suffer in the small things, we can expect that if the 
the opportunity or the the threat of having to make the ultimate sacrifice ever does prevent present itself that you will have prepared yourself by these small mortifications to be strong enough in that moment. Uh, right off the bat, at the beginning of the book, you make a very interesting comparison, and you sort of alluded to this a moment ago. You note that Catholicism is sort of universally adaptable to different places and cultures, and in a sort of a twisted negative of that, so is communism. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit and how communism is kind of the dark reflection or, the, uh, you know, the mirror image of Catholicism in a way? Sure. So one of the main arguments I make in the book is that com communism at its core is ultimately a spiritual project and not merely a political or economic or social endeavor. And at the heart of this is really this inverted cosmology where Communism, of course, promises a worldly utopia and denies the existence of God, so it is overtly atheist. And this is a false messianism, and this is actually something that the church condemned as early as the, the writings of Karl Marx when they were first released. So later on in the book, I go into the many documents before the, uh, the second half of the 20th century that come from the church, so Mr. Um, the writings of Pius XI, uh, the writings of Pius XII. Pius XII actually excommunicated all communists. And he was sure he was clear in that this did not mean people who just happened to have the bad luck of being born under a communist regime, but those who were true believers and who were advocating for this project. And so basically what it does is seek to put man in the place of God. And in that way, it's a very seductive pseudo-religion. This is something that on its surface is very promising. The, of course, everyone wants prosperity and equality. And all of these promises that communism makes are things that are objectively good. But the principle of the ends justifying the means and, of course, the removal of God from the equation means that it's a project destined for a hubristic downfall, just like the Tower of Babel. And we've seen from just the death count of communism over the past century that these hundreds of millions of bodies cannot be um, good fruits born of a good ideology. So the, the, the numbers speak for themselves there. But it was implemented very similarly in every country. And it be, it's because it ultimately, as I argue, speaks to this human desire for worship and the state takes the place of God in that way. And uh, a book that I relied on for sort of the ideological component of this was Father Vincent Michelli's Gods of Atheism. And in that book, he argues that atheism is not really the absence of worship as we think of it, but rather the worship of idols, because as human beings, we have that impulse in us. And if, if God is not in his proper place, something else will fill the vacuum. And it's the perfect way to prime the populace for totalitarianism. Yeah, you describe communism as the doctrine of the Antichrist, which I thought was uh, kind of a unique way to put it. I thought it was very interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Um, and along those lines, you mentioned that there's a kind of ironic similarity between the communist symbol of the sickle, as in your title, when the sickle swings, uh, and the sickle's scriptural meaning. Could you? What is the irony that you see there? Yes, this is one of those ironies that struck me while I was writing that was just amazing that I can't believe the iconography lines up this way. But of course, the hammer and sickle are the ubiquitous symbols of communism, the hammer representing the proletariat that works in the factories, so the industrial proletariat, and then the sickle being the agrarian proletariat, and the 
of course, the party pretending to be the advocate for workers everywhere. But then you think of what these symbols have meant throughout human history, and especially in scripture. The sickle or the scythe was an anem, arise quite often in scripture and are always in parables about the the grain being cut down or the wheat being separated from the chaff. So that moment at which the the faithful are cut down and the personal judgment is made and we always have these images. So Joel 3.13, for example, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe, is, is speaking to this moment of decision where those who have labored in the vineyard for God are are brought to their reward and then the chaff sort of falls away and it's that moment of judgment. Also, incidentally, the hammer represents judgment. As we know, we have seen <clears throat> this in, in many cultures as even here in the US, the hammer, of course, we think of the, the, the judge's bench. And this reminds us that at that final moment, the judge who will be judging the soul that has been cut down by the sickle is God. And so the communist inversion of judgment and justice, because if it, of course, always cloaks itself in the language of justice, of taking down the, the capitalists at the top to be able to redistribute wealth to the those who are more worthy and, and oppressed, and ultimately ends up oppressing people in a much more severe way. So this... Um, this through line that I found with all the interviews I conducted was that even if they weren't thinking of these symbols as such, they had these correct notions of justice in their minds and were operating according to the values of the next world rather than these inverted uh, sort of bastardizations of justice that the communist regimes tried to encode into law. You mentioned that under the communist regimes that you write about in the book, all religions were targeted, but what is it that's different about the Roman Catholic Church uh, in communist eyes? Why was the Roman Catholic Church deemed so especially dangerous to these regimes? Yes, so all religions had a certain degree of persecution. Famously, of course, the Dalai Lama was exiled from Tibet after communist China took over there, and that's still an ongoing issue. But the Catholic Church has a target on its back, especially for a few reasons. So one is this as this concept of salvation. So Christianity is quite unique in world religions in that it posits salvation for our sins. So the idea of the next life as something more than the mere shades of Hades that um, the ancient Romans and Greeks thought of and something more than a worldly utopia that um, many Jewish leaders were waiting for when Jesus came, for example. And so <clears throat> it's at odds completely with the idea of a worldly utopia that communism is, is seeking to implement. The second thing is that the Catholic Church is also technically a political entity and has that aspect to it. So one of the common charges that you'll see levied against Catholics from communist regimes is that they were either a fifth columnist for the Vatican or a spy for a foreign power or an imperialist agent, something like that. And they were thus able to to make a case against them as counter-revolutionaries just because of their mere supposed membership in, in a foreign body. And so... That was something that is also makes it difficult sometimes for canonization processes to move forward because there's this fine line and often blurry line between political and religious persecution. How many survivors did you interview for the book? And did they all make it into the book? What... Um criteria did you use to select the interviewees that you did? And, and were there a couple of themes that you found to be common to their experiences? 
Definitely. So it really was providential, the the people who stepped forward. And I made lots of connections through, through friends and through um, clergy that I know. And ultimately, about 10 of the full interviews or information from them made it into the book. And there were, as I briefly mentioned, several leads or interviews that I could not include due to the tenuous situation in these countries currently. So Nicaragua and China being the primary examples where, unfortunately, Catholics at this moment are being actively persecuted. And we can go in later to the the national church situation in China and how similar that is to what went on in Czechoslovakia, actually, and the precedent that was set there. And <clears throat> So really, it was just the willingness of individuals who wanted to tell their story. And I interestingly found that many people thought that their stories were not interesting. So they would say something like, oh, you don't want to talk to me. Everybody went through this. And then five minutes later, would be talking about their last minute decision to not be in the Bay of Pigs invasion because uh, their CIA contact told them not to or something like that. And like, these are mutually exclusive. Like, yes, <laughs> you, you cannot say you're not interesting and then say that. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I found that, I mean, there are some differences between the countries that ended up in the book that I think are very illustrative, uh, illustrative. And I think the, especially the, the comparison between how the regime was implemented in Cuba versus Czechoslovakia is interesting because one of the things that crops up when studying communism is how impossible resistance was. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said in his Gulag Archipelago, at what point could we have resisted when they were knocking on the door, when they were bringing us into the into the car, the Black Maria? Um, and it was just such a to totalizing and almost gradual process that resistance was really quite futile in a way that it it really wasn't under the Nazi regime, for example. And so in Cuba, this is a bit different because there was this armed resistance. And of course, that's due in in part to the involvement of American intelligence in the Bay of Pigs um, <clears throat> support and, and all of that. But also there were these groups that were Catholic action groups formed at the local high schools, actually. So a Jesuit high school and a Christian Brothers high school that implemented true Catholic action as Pius X implored the world to restore all things in Christ rather than the perverted Catholic action that becomes liberation theology, where it's sort of a, a reconciling of, of communist doctrine with Catholicism. And so that was very interesting that these Catholic action groups had actual agency in fighting communism in this way, whereas resistance in other countries was a lot more internal. So one similarity that I think everyone can attest to is this concept that your first and primary and most important goal is to maintain control and to make sure that your own soul is preserved and saved. And any political action or activism can come after that and can be a good almost byproduct of that. But as one Cuban expat said to me, your communism tries to take your property. Yes, that's fine. We know they do that, but they also try to steal your soul. And there are a few instances illustrated in the book. For example, in in the, the Cuban prisons, the guards would play the sick game that they would also, the communists would do this in the Spanish Civil War, where they would promise someone freedom if they would recant their faith. And once they had gotten them to apostatize, they would laugh at them and shoot them and say, now you're going to hell and rejoice in that. And for a purportedly materialist regime to be so 
obsessed with with the the concept of damning someone's soul is just like I think saying the quiet part out loud of <laughs> the truly demonic nature of communism. Yes, uh, and you write that there is a sort of a blueprint of oppression that is present in all of the stories from the people that you interviewed. Can you talk a bit about that blueprint? Sure. So this, of course, was implemented differently. So in Poland, for example, public worship was not outlawed as much as it was or as severely as it was in Czechoslovakia. But for the purposes of the countries that I studied, and of course, this can be loosely interpreted for each, I identified five five main points that communist regimes sort of implement against the church. And I'll just go through them briefly. So number one is to outlaw the public worship of the church. So to make mass attendance either illegal or in the very least discouraged. From Czechoslovakia, I heard many cases of spies or informers being stationed outside the church doors to take note of who was there. They would make a note of that, pass it on to either their employer or to the colleges and make it more difficult for these people to operate in society. And so there's the soft pressure in addition to the actual pressure of the threat of death or imprisonment or arrest. Second is to round up the clergy and religious. So of course, the clergy are targeted because not only stopping apostolic succession, but also because they are this public symbol and lifeblood of the church. So famously, Cardinal Mincenti, who was Hungarian, was imprisoned for many years under the communist regime in that state. The bishops were often just killed. So this happened in Czechoslovakia, especially among the Eastern Catholics. And then the priests were persecuted, rounded up. Um, I go into these two operations called Operation K and R after the Czech words for monks and nuns. And these happened over the course of several nights in 1949, where several thousands of monks and nuns were rounded up and deported and put either into camps or into forced labor or just removed from their monasteries. And so this is an obvious human rights abuse, but something that was a means of control, both spiritually and within the political realm. Um, Going along with this is to seize and repurpose church property. This is one of those things that can be argued as just a communist tenet for everyone because, of course, private property is abolished, and so the church would be no exception to that. But the seizure not only of the buildings and repurposing of them, but of the treasures of the church. So <clears throat> I have a story in the book of uh, a Czechoslovak family whose house was raided by the STB, the secret police there because they were known to be friends and close with the priests in their community. And they were looking for every last chalice and vestment in order to confiscate that. So really this, this whole uh, holistic seizure of the property. And then finally to control the laity and to infiltrate the church. So this is more of a moral and psychological warfare where as I mentioned before, to place social pressure on practicing Catholics through ostracization, lack of opportunities, threat of arrest, etc. And then also to infiltrate the hierarchy with company men who will either be friendly to communism in church activities or outright inform on their congregation, which unfortunately happened. And in Czechoslovakia, for example, there was a split down the middle where there was a national church, which was established that was loyal to the state and schismatic in that way. And then there was the underground church, which remained loyal to the Vatican and had to, of course, operate without any buildings or state sanctioned um, allowances for anything at all. And so this is something that even happened in the U.S. Uh, Bella Dodd is a famous 
kind of re revert from communism to Catholicism. She was converted under the influence of Bishop Fulton Sheen. And she famously said that she had been responsible as a communist for placing men into the seminaries who were either friendly to communism or true believers themselves. So this is one of those longer term projects that happened worldwide. I know you don't have a lot of time today, so unfortunately we can't get into too many of the individual stories that you tell. But is there one in particular, one victim's testimony um, that maybe you found especially compelling or maybe even representative of the other stories you've collected in this book that you could uh, briefly relate to us? Yes, it's, it's always hard to choose just one, um, but I think I will talk, let's see, I'll talk about um the masses in the prisons in Cuba, which was really inspiring to me because I actually got to see relics from this period at the Bay of Pigs Museum down in Miami, where um, prisoners actually carved rosaries out of whatever was available to them. So they carved them out of cigar boxes and other wood that was available and other uh, scapulars were there and any missiles and books that were smuggled in. And <clears throat> One gentleman who I interviewed down there, his name was Arturo. He spent 17 years in prison. He was actually sentenced to 30 years for counter-revolutionary activity. That was the highest sentence you could get. After that, you were just shot and executed as a counter-revolutionary. And he got out after an amnesty negotiated with Jimmy Carter. So during that time in prison, he recounts many extraordinary stories, including of witnessing these masses that went on. So Sometimes there would be priests interned in the camps. And so when that was possible, they would say mass and sometimes the Eucharist was smuggled in or they would be able to consecrate depending on what was available. But even when that was not possible, the prisoners who were Catholic would always get together and either read the prayers of the mass or recite them from memory every Sunday and just make a spiritual spiritual communion at the time of consecration. And this happened under duress, of course, these <clears throat> This could be punishable um, by any sort of sadistic treatment from the guards. Uh, Orturo was among the group of prisoners known as the plantados. So this comes from the word meaning to be planted or firm. And this meant that they were not susceptible to re-education attempts. So these are the prisoners who had refused all of these false promises, like we mentioned earlier, of, oh, go ahead and recant the faith or give up something or just just make some sort of performative show of loyalty and you'll get some special privileges. So because they were so steadfast, they, of course, were treated worse, tortured more. Um, they were forced to wear special yellow uniforms to set them apart. And he he also talks about these um, martyrs that he witnessed where these men would go to their deaths shouting Viva Cristo Rey. And I go into some of the stories of those martyrs and what they mean for the community um, and include some of their own words from their letters that were left behind at the museum as well. And so his story was inspiring, not only because of what he went through, but also his entire attitude and how he interprets what happened to him, because he's very careful to note he does not consider himself a victim of communism, but rather a survivor and a fighter somebody who didn't just sit by and watch what happened, but felt this duty to fight back in this way and to remain positive and hopeful and keeping his faith throughout all of it, which is really all that we have to do is just to keep the faith no matter how hard it gets. And so that, um, that I walked away from that just completely inspired. And I think that's one story that readers will find particularly compelling. Yes, I think one of the good lessons from your book is that for every Solzhenitsyn that we know about, there are innumerable, quote unquote, 
uh, ordinary people who faced communist oppression with with real dignity and strength and endurance. Endurance. It's not all about extraordinary human beings. And you make an important point toward the end of the book that the stories you report on are relatable to each of us, uh, and that these stories show us that we too can resist the institutionalized forces of evil with small daily actions. Is there something you could suggest to the listeners about one or two things they could do in their own lives to sort of push back against what I would call a cultural and political chaos and darkness today that might seem overwhelming to people? Sure. So I think the first thing is, as I mentioned earlier, to make sure that you're tending to your own soul and to not allow any conquering of your mind to happen. So with the onslaught of propaganda, it's easy to fall into despair. And when you realize that that is actually a victory of the enemy to get you to be thinking that way, then you kind of realize that that is more important than anything that could happen to you externally. And so many stories in the book recount, for example, praying the rosary or just turning the TV off during Nicolae Ceausescu's daily rants in Romania or <laughs> um, just going to mass underground, even like regardless of what the consequences would be in your day-to-day -day life. And so that's something that I would just make sure that people are making time for the prayer, the sacraments and intellectual formation, even if the externals seem more dire. And then the second thing, I said this in another interview, is to kind of be pessimistic, but in a cheerful way. And what I mean by that is that government when when government takes power it typically does not give it back and so to <laughs> to approach anything that looks tempting and too good to be true with a, a big grain of salt so one example of this is um in the UK socialized healthcare and how this of course presents itself as something that's a, a net benefit and something that is very good and a social help to everyone but recently there was a case of a baby who had an illness that they deemed would was not compatible with life. And even though they would not allow the parents to get a second opinion, um, the parents were offered by the um, Italian government to come to Rome to one of the Vatican hospitals and seek treatment there. And the British government actually blocked this because they do own healthcare. And that is something that they have seized from the choice of parents and individuals and into the hands of the state. And unfortunately, tragically, this baby died. And this is not the first time that that has happened there. So when you're thinking of the trade-offs of what will happen if I give the government power over my health and life and death and take it to its logical extreme, it might seem pessimistic, but we're seeing it happen in real time now. And this is something to keep in mind whenever there's a trade-off between comfort and convenience and independence and um, individual control, even if it's hard. You write that the people whose stories you told in this book barely scratches the surface of the number of untold stories that are out there. And you obviously feel very strongly about bringing these stories into the light of day because you say that you want to make this your life's work. Is that right? Yeah, I really do want to continue with this, whether that be through another book, through a database of interviews, through a YouTube channel, things like that. There are organizations I really admire out there, like the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, some local ones in other countries. Unfortunately, one in Russia, Memorial, which was memorializing gulag victims, was shut down just last year by the Putin regime. So this is something that is still very important and has its enemies currently. And so I think is even more important because of these attempts to silence these stories. So of course, I'm always open to speaking to anyone who wants to tell their story in this way through whatever medium they feel would be most effective. So this is something that hopefully I will be able to do um, 
many years into the future. And of course, if anyone has a story and would like to talk, please contact me. Well, more power to you. Um, Listeners, again, the book we've been talking about today is When the Sickle Swings by Kristen Van Uden, Stories of Catholics Who Survived Communist Oppression. And again, you don't have to be Catholic to find this book riveting and important. Kristen, thanks for the book and thanks for coming on The Right Take. I have to let you go, I know, but uh, there's so much more to talk about in this topic. I'm going to have to have you back again. That sounds good. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Happy New Year. Listeners, thank you again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so you can keep up with all the important conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. It really helps. Be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.